turn to the Bible now, so could I encourage you um, to lift the Bible? Um, there should be some, if you don't have your own with you, there should be some in the pew there. Um, and if you are using one of the church Bibles, um, we're going to look at page 1213, uh, 1213, um, which is slightly annoying because that page doesn't actually have a number at the top of it, but it's the one beside 1212. Um, one, two, one, three. Um, if you were here last week, you'll know um, that we had a couple of sort of spare weeks um, between two weeks ago and Easter. Um, so we decided together um, to look at the first few chapters of this letter of James. Um, if you weren't here last week, um, don't worry too much because one of the things we saw was that this is a, what we call a general letter. Um, James wrote it um, and it was probably passed around a whole lot of churches. So we don't need um, loads of context just to jump straight in. So we're going to read uh, James chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 19, um, and reading through to chapter 2 and verse uh, 13, I think. This is God's word. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs 
over judgment. Let's pray together as we come to look at this part of the Bible. Our Father, we thank you for the Bible, for your words which are given to us. Lord, we thank you for those who through all the ages have sought to seek your will and interpret your word. And Lord, as we come to do that together this evening with these challenging words, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would challenge and rebuke us where that is necessary, but also that you would encourage us and build us up to be more Christ-like. And we pray in his name. Amen. Um, as we started out uh, our sermon this morning, um, Peter got to show off his encyclopedic knowledge of people who had done things uh, the first time. Um, so I know some of you tonight have near encyclopedic knowledge of Irish League football. Now, my own knowledge of Irish League football is somewhere between little and, not, and non-existent, but I know some of you will probably know. I, I want to see if anybody can recognize who this player, this is a blast from the past, by the way. Does anybody know who that is? Clive's hand straight up. Yes? It's Johnny Jemison. Now, I realize that to some of you that might not mean very much. Johnny Jemison was an Irish League, and yes, he was an Irish League footballer. I say was because he was a footballer, not because he's dead. He's still quite alive and well. Um, but Johnny was quite famous because he played for Linfield, and then he crossed over the city and played for Glentoran as well. Now, I know that's controversial, but I thought in East Belfast it'd probably be okay um, bringing him up. He told me on one occasion that he was, the, he was the best friend of all the ball boys at Windsor Park because after he played for Glentoran at Windsor Park, they got to come onto the pitch and pick up all the money that had been thrown at him during the match. And he used to play in the wing, in fact, so that, you know, the fans fancied their chances and threw quite a lot in there, and they made a fortune. He was part of the Northern Irish World Cup squad in 1982, that famous team that beat Spain in their own backyard. Possibly also famous for the fact that he wouldn't play uh, on a Sunday. He was a Christian and um, he didn't feel he could do that as part of his conscience. Now, why am I talking about this? Why is there a random Irish League footballer on the screen? Well, the reason is because when I read James 1 and 2 earlier this week, I immediately thought of Johnny. Now, you probably still aren't with me, so I'll give you another clue. Johnny was a number of years ago a member of Abbey Presbyterian Church in Monkstown, and that's where I grew up. So I knew Johnny when I was small. Picture the scene, it's the mid-1990s. I'm there in my short trousers or whatever I wore when I went to church back in those days, and it's time for the children's address, and up steps Johnny with uh, another guy um, who's, who's still at Abbey, a guy called Jeff. And Johnny and Jeff decide together that um, it's the minister's birthday that week, so they're going to bake a cake. Now, I always used to get really excited when Johnny got up to do the children's dress because he usually made a mess. Thankfully, we didn't have carpet in Abbey. We had a wooden floor, so it was easy cleaned up. So they decided they would make a cake, and Johnny read out this recipe. He said, oh, sure, we know how to make a cake, don't we? And he scrambled it up and he threw it away. And anyway, Johnny and Jeff, they decided they would make this cake. And they asked us, the boys and girls, what do you, what do you think we should put in? Well, eggs, okay. So they whacked some eggs in, you know, shells and all, just threw them into a bowl, flour, butter, whatever else. They made a real mess. I think by the end of it, they were throwing it at one another. But the point of that was, of course, the fact that they looked at the recipe at the start, and then they went away and ignored what it said. 
And we read in James a few moments ago, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I confess that I didn't remember that from when I was four. I was actually speaking to Jeff recently. I, I said, do you remember that children's dress where you were throwing stuff at Johnny? And he said, I, but do you remember the point of it? And I said, no, I just remember it was really funny. But apparently that was the point. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, this little book of James that we're looking at in these couple of weeks has been accused, even by some Christians, of being quite, well, moralistic. You know, do this, don't do that. The book actually only mentions Jesus twice, and the first time is in the very first verse when James introduces himself as the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James says, you know, don't just listen to the Bible. Do what it says. Don't show favoritism. Don't worry. Don't slander. Keep your tongue in order, just to give a few examples. So sometimes he is accused of being a little bit moralistic. But I don't think this is actually the case. We saw at the end of our time um, last week, in the last couple of verses we read, um, 17 and 18 of chapter 1, James says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So he chose to give us this new birth. That's language which is representative of the fact that we've received new life if we've believed in Jesus. And James is writing to Christians, so he doesn't feel the need to rehearse the whole gospel all over again. He's not being moralistic. He's just assuming that you've kind of already got the basics, that you know we have this new life. And he says that we're a kind of first fruits of all he created. And only very briefly um, touched on this last week, but the idea of first fruits comes from the Old Testament, from the fact that the people of Israel, um, when they brought in their crops or had their animals or whatever they did, they brought the first of their harvest to the Lord. It, it didn't belong to them. The first and the best, they give it to God. So the fact that James, has, James says that we have been bought, we've been given new life so that we can be first fruits, the point is that we belong now to God. So he's not being moralistic. It's simple logic. God has given us new birth. God has bought us. Um, sometimes we use the language of redemption, something being redeemed. If you redeem a voucher or a coupon or money or whatever, something is being bought, something is being exchanged. We once belonged to the kingdom of this world, but God redeemed us. We belong to him, and therefore we should obey him. It follows, it's logical. It's a theme all through the Bible. The Old Testament people um, of God didn't always do a very good job of obeying him. Um, one example um, to give you, Isaiah 43, when, in the time of the prophet Isaiah, he talks of the people belonging to God, but the people didn't obey. So God punishes them. God says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So the people belong to God. But yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. You have been weary of me, O Israel. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple, and I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. Now, if you go back and look at that chapter, um, it's not all bad news. God does say that he will blot out the transgressions of his people. 
but it's, it's, it's just that simple logic, the fact that we belong to God, therefore we should obey. Again, it flows right through into the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the church at Corinth twice that they've been bought at a price. He says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought, you belong to God, it follows that you should obey. Jesus himself taught this too, Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord and not do what I command? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the man who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. And I think we're maybe so familiar with that story, but we don't realize that when Jesus told it, it, it probably made people laugh. It was nearly like a Paddy Englishman, Paddy Scotsman, Paddy Irishman. I don't think we're allowed to tell those anymore, but you know, it was just so ridiculous that somebody would build a house without a foundation. It just wouldn't have happened. So it doesn't make sense to call him Lord and not to obey. But it's important that we know that it, it happens in that order. We're not saved by obeying. In fact, that's quite important. We're free from that. We don't actually have the obligation to obey in order to be saved. But it does make the sense to ask the question, well, if we are saved, well, what are we saved for? So that we can keep on sinning? No. Reference the Book of Romans. To do our own thing? No. If Jesus is Lord, then we're saved to serve and obey him in freedom. Because we get to, not just because. We have to. It's the fact that we're actually free from the shackles of the law. We're free from the expectation of kind of having to do this to make the mark that we're absolutely free to serve him openly and freely. In many ways, actually, after James's opening words about trials and temptation that we looked at last week, these verses about listening and doing, they sum up the rest of the book. You're saved, you have new life, and this is what your new life is for now. The rest of the book explains, yes, that's what it's like. It, it's what wisdom is like. It's not showing favoritism. It's what speaking and loving and facing trials looks like in that new life. It's what relating to other people looks like in this new life. And in this little section at the end of chapter one that we're thinking about first, we're told what it doesn't look like. Firstly, we're told it doesn't look like empty talk. Verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. If anyone considers himself, sorry, verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. I suppose there's lots could be said about those verses, but suffice it for now to say, that our new life doesn't just look like a lot of empty talk or a lot of arguing. I think we all know Christians who are a bit like this. Um, Justine and I drove past some yesterday in a town in County Antrim um, where they were genuinely you know, sort of shouting in their microphone at people and, and sort of condemning people. I, I think we all know Christians who are guilty of this, you know, who are more worried about being right, about having debates with people about the existence of God or creation or whatever, get ourselves worked up about it 
when people maybe say things that offend us or that we think aren't theologically you know, quite right or that seem to curtail our freedom. And it's not to say that there's no place for those discussions, of course there is. But if they're the sum of our faith, if they're the most important issues to us, then our own religion is, is just talk. It's not really what this new life is meant to look like. Look like. And following on from that, the other things James says this new life doesn't look like is empty religion. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I wonder if somebody asked you, you know, your faith, I, I don't get it, what is it? I wonder if you would sum it up like looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Caring for people, showing mercy, seeking justice for those who are marginalized and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. In other words, justice and holiness, mercy and obedience. Religion that seeks quiet purity over endless talking about proving yourself to be right and caring for others instead of just religious activity. The Bible says several times that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. It's, again, this has been an issue for all of God's people through all time, that the temptation to kind of just you know, get, the, get the religion bit right, to get the religious activity right, and ignore actually caring for people to give another example from the Old Testament in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, this is what God says to his people, and, and these are difficult words. God says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. The words that the people are trusting in um, are, are that sort of phrase that, that God gives, this is the temple of the Lord. In other words, the people thought, well, we've got the temple, we've got our sacrifices, we've got all those things going on, that's great, that's right. We'll trust in those things. We'll trust in these words. We, we can just say, if anybody accuses of anything, well, we have the temple of the Lord. They had the right religious place, the right rituals. They thought they were okay with God. But they didn't have mercy or holiness, actually. They oppressed foreigners, fa the fatherless and widows. They shed innocent blood and followed other gods. Things weren't different by the time of Jesus, even with the most religious of people like the Pharisees. Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important or the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. They did a lot of religious stuff. I mean, they didn't just give a tenth of their money. They gave a tenth of their mint, dill, and cumin. I, I'm sorry, every time I read those words, I imagine Justine or, or somebody in the kitchen, like, m literally measuring out, like, the little bottles of herbs or whatever, you know, and making sure you get a tenth um, to give it in the church. Um, 
Anyway, so that's just me. But they rejected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Note that Jesus said they, they should have done that, but they shouldn't have neglected the former. They weren't to neglect being religious. They weren't to neglect doing the things that they knew they were to do in the temple. But there were more important things to be doing. What might that look like for you and me today? Well, what are the religious things that we do if we call them religious things? We meet together. We sing together truths, usually things from God's word. We, we pray together based usually on truths from God's words that we're to come to him with our praises and our confessions and our concerns. We listen to God's word read and taught. We thought this morning about how important that is. And, and again, Jesus tells the religious leaders, look, the, the stuff you're doing, that's good. You shouldn't neglect those things. And it is really important that we meet together and do all of those things and study the word and all of that. By all means, do those things. But James, as he has a tendency to do, is pretty cutthroat. We also need to obey. We also need to do it justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Living for Jesus, not just religious activity, not just knowing about his teaching, but living it. I was really challenged when I listened to Marty this morning, knowing that I was coming this evening to read the words, don't just listen to the word, but do it. Hmm. Food for thought. So these words at the end of James 1, they, they set up the rest of the book. This is what following Jesus looks like. This is what it is to belong to the people of God, to be a disciple. Not empty words, not empty religion, but holiness and justice. So we've been called as followers of Jesus, not just to hear the word, not just to know it or to come to church or whatever, as much as important as those things are, but to obey, especially when it comes to how we treat others and maybe those um, who are on the fringes. And in that vein, then James turns to the topic of favoritism. And it might be a little bit uncomfortable, I guess, for some of us. I'm sure we've all experienced it uh, in some way or other. Um, maybe you have been poorly treated, or maybe you've even benefited from a bit of favoritism. Uh, maybe you've known somebody who works at a particular place who gives you a wee discount, you know, or, or has given you some free extras. And I don't think that's necessarily always a bad thing. I don't think that is really what James is on about here, especially if it doesn't negatively impact on anybody else. But the problem with favoritism does come when other people are hurt or disadvantaged. While one person is treated well, and that's obviously lovely, another isn't receiving that kind of treatment and has a harder time of it. Um, a couple of years ago, before um, Rebecca was born, um, Justine did a job interview um, at a school uh, for a position of classroom assistant. And you know, she went in, she did the interview, she thought it went quite well, was quite pleased with herself. Um, Justine doesn't tend to get too flustered in these situations. And she walked out of the school office, or she, sorry, she walked out of the, the little room that they were in, and they called the next person. And that person walked out of the school office across the corridor and into the room. And they said, oh, hi, Karen, how are you? Sure, come on in, we need to have a wee chat about this. And Justine thought, why did I bother? Why did these people interview me? She's a shoe in, she's gonna get the job. It's a real problem in lots of sectors, not just education, but it seems to happen a lot in education. It's not what you know, it's who you know. 
And throughout the Bible, we see God's concern for people who maybe don't know the right people, for people whose society has not treated well. We've already looked at some examples and we'll not go back to those, but you might be here thinking to yourself tonight, well, do you know what? You know, yeah, I'm okay. I'm, I'm quite a fair person. I, I don't think I really show anybody any favoritism. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, we all know that we do it. We judge people by the way they dress, the way they look, maybe the way they speak. And the really scary thing is that most of the time, we do it subconsciously. I read somewhere that human beings have between 50 and 70,000 thoughts each day, but around 95% of that brain activity is entirely subconscious. Our decision-making and our behavior, 95% of it, we don't know anything about in our conscious mind. And once we've made a subconscious decision about someone, that will play out in how we treat them. And God's word tonight urges us very consciously not to do that. And it is something that happens in church. I'm not having a go at anyone in particular. Um, I wonder what sort of reception Johnny Jemison would get if he walked in based on the reaction I got earlier. I'd be fairly certain though, since we're all fallen human beings, it's an issue in our hearts, maybe not one that we've really thought about before, but it is an issue for all of us. James is speaking about this happening at church actually because he talks about a man who comes in in, in you know, fancy clothes and a man who comes in in shabby clothes into a meeting. Um, and the word there that's translated as meeting is the word from which we get a synagogue. So he's talking about a religious meeting, a church meeting. It's also clear that this should be a top issue for us in church. James says, my brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. James is typically straight to the point, but there's a lot of significance in that little statement. I mentioned earlier that James only mentions Jesus twice, and, and that's the second one. It's the only time in the main body of James where Jesus is mentioned. And that has to give us some sense of the gravitas of the importance that James places on this. He appeals to them in the strongest terms. My brothers, as believers in Jesus, don't show favoritism. Not just don't show favoritism, but as Christians. This is important. Don't show favoritism. Not showing favoritism is linked intrinsically to being a follower of Jesus. And not only is it intrinsically linked, it's the means by which we live lives that don't show favoritism. Because we're called to avoid favoritism by imitating Jesus. We're called to avoid favoritism by imitating Jesus. And I don't think it's insignificant here either that James refers to his audience not simply as believers in Jesus, but believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is glorious. And if we don't imitate him, if we go ahead and judge by earthly standards, which we all do, well then we'll fail to see something of his glory because the glory of Jesus is that God values lowliness. He values humility. He values gentleness. That's what Jesus did. He exchanged the, the joy of heaven and the glory of heaven for this world. You'll know these very familiar words from Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's the imitating Jesus bit. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most horrendous death. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the glory of Jesus, that he descended to the lowest place and then God exalted him to the highest place. Let's not forget that first sentence. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We imitate Jesus and we see something of his glory when we value those who the world doesn't value, when we don't show favoritism, when we value those who might not ordinarily be valued. James gives this example about the two men, one well-dressed and the other with shabby clothes in church. It would have probably been very common then in house churches for people to have to sit on the floor. Poor Eutychus earlier, it seems he was sitting in a, in a window before he fell asleep and fell out. But the well-dressed man, he doesn't just get a seat, which would have been a premium anyway, but he gets a good seat. James rebukes the people. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's not the way of Jesus who identified himself with sinners, so it shouldn't be our way either. It wasn't the way of Jesus as he walked the earth, but even more than that, it's not the way of who he is. And as Christians, we know that because we've actually experienced this in being saved. Verse five, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? God actually chose those who are poor in the eyes of the world to inherit the kingdom, to be Christians, but you've insulted the poor. Jesus himself said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We know that, we know that we're sinners, that we're fallen people, and we were once poor in spirit. But the gospel says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and we've received the kingdom of God. We were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless, to be his, to be Christians. And so we can love him and love others because he has first loved us. We can love those that the world doesn't love because he loved us when we were very unlovely. Our salvation reveals to us the very mind of God. He's concerned with lowly people, worthless people in the eyes of the world. And so if we make those earthly judgments, we contradict the mind of God. So we're not to show favoritism, we're to imitate Jesus because he didn't. And in fact, he displayed a kind of anti-favoritism in that he actively sought out people who society shunned, actively seeked out the people who knew they weren't good enough. And he's shown that us that this is the mind of God in how he brought us to him, the guilty ones. So we avoid favoritism by imitating Christ and we're also called to, to avoid favoritism by obeying, not just imitating, but obeying. Verse eight of James two, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. 
We don't really know why James calls this the royal law found in scripture, but it's probably because Jesus described it as one of the two greatest commandments. And here we're moving on from the analogy of the rich and poor man in church. Here, here it is plainly, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. We're meant to avoid partiality in every human situation in obedience to this law. Love your neighbor as ourselves. If we act towards other people on any basis other than this, other than recognition of their real need, wholehearted concern for their welfare, then, then we break that law. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're dearly loved, and so we're to live a life of love. We avoid favoritism by loving our neighbor. And, and James, again, is keen to stress that ignoring this is no small issue, but it would make us guilty of breaking the whole law of God. No matter the sin, he uses this little analogy between adultery and murder. If you do one, well, you've broken the law either way. Maybe a, a good way to think of it is like this. And um, the story is told of uh, an American pastor um, who was out playing golf and uh, he mishit his tee shot on the first hole. And the ball went out of bounds and it went into somebody's garden and he, he thought he heard a bit of a smash, but he, you know, he was praying that it wasn't the case. But when he got round into the garden, he found that he had broken a window. But it wasn't just any window. It was this window that looked over the whole golf course, you know, 20 feet wide, 14 feet high, this huge feature window in the front of this house. And he thought, oh no. And the owner of the house came out and he had steam coming out of his ears, you know. He was really angry about this. And he says, look what you did to my window. And, and the pastor said, look, look, it's okay. It's okay, we can, we can deal with this, you know. Um, we can sort this out. And he reached into his pocket and he got out his wallet and he pulled out a $10 bill and he handed it to the man. And if there was steam coming out of the man's ears before, you can imagine what he was thinking. And he said, well, this window cost me 20,000. And you're going to give me $10? And the pastor replied, well, I know it's an expensive window, but I only broke that little part of it. It doesn't work like that, does it? We're called to full obedience to Christ. And if we don't do that in one area, then, then we're guilty. Now, you might ask, well, doesn't James set us, or doesn't Jesus set us free from the law? Is James kind of contradicting him here? Well, again, we thought about this earlier. It's not that we obey to be accepted. We're accepted, so we obey. But we're still called to obey. Think of it like this. When the people of Israel were slaves in the Old Testament and God appeared to Moses and told him that he was going to deliver the people, he says, well, when you do, you will come here and worship me on this mountain. And that was the mountain where the law was given. So it's actually the people's freedom that warrants their obedience. They were free from slavery to serve and obey the Lord. And that's how it is with us. Jesus has set us free, so we're no longer slaves to the law. No, we're freed by grace, but it is freedom to obey. Not wondering if we've kind of done enough today. Have I cared for enough orphans and widows today? No, we don't have to think about it like that. We're free, but we're free to obey. Jesus himself said, if you love me, 
you'll keep my commands. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It doesn't make sense. Finally, then, James talks about judgment. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These are actually pretty tricky verses, and we're not going to spend loads of time on them. But if, you, if I'd only read those verses tonight, you might be tempted to think, well, is what Jesus did on the cross enough? Because James says here, we're going to be judged. We're going to be judged by the law. So do we have to kind of still be good enough to earn our salvation? But that's not what James is saying. The rest of his letter doesn't allow us to think that, and the rest of the Bible certainly doesn't allow us to think that. But the nature of this judgment that James is talking about is something of a mystery. But the Bible does teach that each one of us will have to give an account on the day of judgment for the things we've done in the body. Paul says we each stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5. And we will be judged. But the difference is, if we are in Christ, that judgment will not lead to punishment. We will hear our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or as James more simply puts it, mercy triumphs over judgment. We still face judgment, but after judgment comes glory for those with faith in Christ. So, as brothers and sisters and believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. How do we do that? Will we look to Jesus, the one who knew lowliness and weakness as the place where his power could be made perfect? We imitate him in how he treated everybody around him with this kind of upside-down favoritism. And we obey his commands to love our neighbor by doing the same. Can I say to you that if, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I realize that this might have been a, a, bit, a pretty strange sermon to come into. I mean, wh why all the fuss about favoritism? Sure, the world would be a better place without it, wouldn't it? But, but what does it mean to me? Well, could I encourage you today to look to Jesus as the one who didn't show favoritism? Because maybe the reason that you've never come to him before is because you don't actually think that it's for you. You, you don't think you're good enough. You don't think you'd be able to keep it up. It's, it's, it's too high a bar. I mean, the, 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 those things that those Christians say they believe, I, I don't think I could do that. They can't do it most of the time. Well, it's a case of good news and bad news. The bad news is you're, you're right. On your own, you, you can't do it. You can't earn your way into God's favor. But the good news is that Jesus came, sent from heaven to save people just like you. It's that upside down favoritism I was talking about. You can come as you are with all your weaknesses and all your pain to the one who knew his mission was not to show favoritism to those who thought they deserved it, but to do the opposite, to seek out those who knew that they didn't. Jesus himself said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I love um, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that verse. He says this, I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know that they're sinners. If that is you tonight, then Jesus says to you, yes, really to you, come follow me.
This is the way of salvation. And you can know it today. If you're here today and you are following Jesus, then the call tonight is to imitate and obey him. Maybe you can think of a a specific person or a specific situation where you know God is nudging you tonight. Maybe Maybe it's in work and there's that person who's kind of in the margins. Maybe it's in your family and there's that person who kind of gets left out of stuff because, you know, for whatever reason that people give. Maybe God is prompting you today that you need to act really quite differently. But even if there's no specific situation like that that you can think of tonight, I want to encourage you tonight, look to Jesus. Look to how he treated those around him. Remember tonight how he reached out in love to you. And maybe take some time later on tonight and reflect on how he's calling you to live in response to that. Maybe you're here tonight and you've, you're something of a victim of favoritism. You've been treated badly by someone, maybe in church, maybe outside of it. And you need to find healing and grace and comfort in the one who doesn't show that kind of favoritism, but who reaches out to you with his love. But wherever... You're coming, at from this, you're coming at this from tonight. We can rejoice in this, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Thank you that you didn't wait for us to earn your favor, but that you stepped in when we were helpless and you've saved us. Lord, would you help each one of us to see more clearly just exactly what Jesus has won for us on the cross and to see the way that you made possible for us to come just as we are to you. And so help us to respond to that love shown to us, to accept it and to come as we are in joyful obedience to our master and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.